Welcome to the Gaimia Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're listening to the pod and trust that this message encourages your heart and faith today. At GBC, we're all about partnering with God in the renewal and restoration of all things. And it's our hope that through these sermons, you'll discover the life-changing power of Jesus. If you'd like to join us in person or online or find out more, check out our website at guymerebaptist.org.au. Thank you for leading us in prayer. It's fantastic. Great to have you here this morning, both those of you who are joining us online and those of you who are here on site. Uh, As Rock said, we are finishing our series, Jesus in the City Morning Herald, Uh, a sermon that I've titled, At the Turn of the Tide, Shifts in Secularism. And the phrase, At the Turn of the Tide, is actually taken from The Two Towers, the second book in J.R.R. Tolkien's classic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Um, If you are familiar with the books or with the movies, less so with the movies, I suppose, One of the themes that you find in the books is the theme between hope and despair. And nearly all of the heroes and the villains can be kind of determined and described as as either being hopeful or as despairing. Uh, And in particular, you can see that in how they respond to the lure and the temptation of the one ring of power. The one ring that if they were to seize it might solve all of their problems that actually might see them come to victory. And those who hope resist the lure of the ring and those who despair seek to grab it for their own means. In the two towers, uh, it's kind of at the kind of the grimmest point in the story. Uh, the fellowship of the ring who have been tasked to destroy the ring has been scattered. Uh, mighty men have fallen in battle. Uh, there are some enemies, uh, that some powerful friends who have despaired and become enemies. Uh, things are kind of looking pretty grim. There's a lack of trust amongst allies and the slow attrition over time has weakened their resolve and their strength. And it's at this point in time that Gandalf, the wizard, comes to the scattered remnants of the fellowship. And he meets them and he says, I come to you now at the turn of the tide. Uh, And it's early in the second book. But from that point on, if you consider it from the kind of the overall uh, narrative, he is in fact right. Uh, There are some significant battles yet to fight, some enormous obstacles yet to overcome, some incredible risks that need to be taken. And yet the tide does indeed begin to turn at that point in the book. And I, I kind of I thought of that as kind of an overarching metaphor for where we find ourselves as the church in the West. Because the tide of secularism has a lot of us kind of gasping for breath, wouldn't you say? It's just kind of been getting higher and higher and higher. And though we stand on tippy toes, the sets are still coming through. And there's all sorts of reasons for the kind of the rising tide of secularism that I think we often face whether it be the slow and steady but inevitable collapse of what's called Christendom, uh, the kind of the name that is given to the combination of church and state, where the church was central to society and to government and to legislation, Uh, whether you want to talk a little bit about the rise of pluralism and the loss of one single worldview. We are no longer living in a society where we can expect or believe that the people that we're engaging with see the world the same way we do. They might have a completely different framework from the person sitting next to them and sitting next to them. We might look at the decline in church attendance that's true all over the Western world. Or, if you want to be more positive, the upswing in those who are now saying on the census data that they have no religious affiliation. One's going down, one's going up. They both seem to indicate the same sort of thing. 
We might look at some of the strident militant atheism that we know is out there, right? Uh, the Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchenses of the world. The, the God is not good. Uh, and some of their popular appropriation and mockery of Christian ignorance and superstition, essentially saying that faith and Christianity is not just irrelevant, but is in fact dangerous to the world. Which, of course, is demonstrated through a whole series of very persuasive and powerful myths. You've probably heard some of them. That there is a, a kind of a divide between faith and science. Not just in terms of how they see the world, but in the fact that those who hold to faith are therefore opposed to science, they're opposed to reason, they're opposed to progress. And if you've ever wanted to see the church as an anchor, you just look through history. I mean, didn't they persecute Galileo for saying something about the sun, right? Or you may have heard the one that, that goes like this, that religion leads inevitably to violence, particularly monotheistic religions. Right? Happens all the time. We see it at 9-11 and all sorts of other examples. Or the myth that essentially the Bible is so full of absolutely laughable inconsistencies that no one with their right mind, apart from someone who was obviously opposed to reason and logic, would ever build a life on it. It is dangerous to build a life on the inconsistent Bible or on some sort of anti-progress state or something that always leads to violence. Have you heard any of these little arguments thrown about before? I'm sure you have. And then, of course, there are the self-inflicted own goals that the church has committed, right? Whether it be our shared guilt with our wider society in terms of systemic child abuse, whether it be our position on women, whether it be some of the hate-filled responses to the LGBT community, regardless of where we stand on the ethics of that, the responses that are hate-filled are totally and utterly inappropriate. Whether it be, for instance, uh, some of the other, uh, the falls from grace of significant church leaders, and while those kind of the big mega churches are the ones that hit the newspaper, I can tell you right now that abuses of power and financial mismanagement and inappropriate behavior and moral failure does not just happen in really large churches. And the result of all of this, this rising tide of secularism, however you kind of engage with it, is that I think ultimately we have all, all of us fundamentally lost just a little bit of confidence in our faith and its place in the world and our place in the world. I mean, some of those arguments sound pretty darn persuasive. They seem like they're pretty true. They sound like they're accurate portrayals of the world. I mean, all of us know very reasonable people, don't we? who have begun to rethink their faith, who have taken some of the things that they were raised with and kind of had a good look at them and, and being very reasonable people have thought, you know what, there's other ways to look at this and I'm not so sure and they have put their faith on the shelf or have walked away entirely. And because of the persuasiveness of the myths that we hear and of the examples of reasonable people who have walked away from their faith, we can tend to be a little bit afraid to have a good hard look at our faith lest we find what we are told is going to be there, which is nothing. We end up feeling like I don't want to look too closely at what I believe in case I find out that in reality this is an irrelevant and dangerous worldview. And even if our faith hasn't kind of been shaken in that way, we can end up with just a little bit more of a private faith. And I've had these conversations with many of you. How do you talk about faith in a world that is not interested in it? Like, you just get howled down. It's not even a matter, shall I say, of being afraid to speak of faith. It's more a matter of, how do I even do that? How do I even begin a conversation about faith? 
I mean, just to begin it, you just get howled down. You get kind of, kind of boxed in in a particular way, and off, that's it. You're done. How do we go about doing this? How do we end up developing kind of this robust faith? And so we can end up, I think, as a church, and the church in the West, I think, evidences this, where we can end up very, very defensive. You're going to come at me? Well, I'm going to just, I got my dukes up too, Right? If I'm sucked into the culture wars, vainly believing that they will somehow replace us in the middle of culture again, we swing our own haymakers. But we've closed off, we've conserving, we're trying to protect what's left, right? We, we're, 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 we're afraid to look too deeply, we're afraid to scratch the surface, we're not even willing to push back anymore from the margins that we have been pushed to. I'll come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Because I believe that there is some slim evidence that the tide is beginning to turn. And that there is beginning to be a movement in our society where there is greater openness to matters of faith, matters of morality, matters of ethics, matters of scripture and of beauty, of purpose and identity. And I believe that we need to be prepared for that event. When Gandalf arrives in the forest of Fangorn and tells the scattered remnants of the fellowship that he has come at the turn of the tide, he is not coming just to kind of be some sort of prophetic voice and to say from now on things are going to get better. He actually says those things to call them to courage and fidelity, faithfulness and loyalty to the cause that they had committed to and courage to continue to act even though it seemed grim even though it seemed pointless, even though it seemed that their quest on a knife's edge would fail. Believe the same is true for us. This is not me trying to say, hey, we can be ahead of the curve here. Let's have a look at society and see what's out there, and aren't we clever? This is a call to courage and fidelity. Let me give you some of the slight evidence that I found out there. For me, a lot of what I've encountered is really through my reading so a number of years ago, I was encouraged to read a book by René Girard, a French philosopher. Uh, it was recommended by a, a, a good friend of mine, and on the basis of the esteem with which I hold him, I ordered the book, because philosophy is not kind of my favorite playground. Uh, and it sat on my kind of pile of books to read for a while until I encountered the name René Girard that I had never heard before in the introduction to a book on the atonement an introduction to the book on violence and religion, and the introduction of another book that I can't remember the context of. And I thought, fine, I will read the book. It took me a long time to, to plow through it. But essentially, he ends up saying, long story short, that essentially the only hope for our society is if we turn to the teachings of Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. How surprising that a pastor reads a book that ends up talking about Jesus. It took me by surprise because that is not at all where he began. He didn't begin with kind of the standard, typical ways that we might talk about the mess our society is in or the things that it actually needs. He begins with historical analysis and talks about symbols and about rituals and about what they signify in society and about scapegoats. And eventually, he ends up getting to the point where he says, if we do not embrace the teaching of Jesus, our society is a mess. And there was hardly anything to that point of time that made me believe that he was religious or spiritual. Remarkable. I mentioned that I heard his name in the introduction to a book by Karen Armstrong called Fields of Blood, where she debunks the myth that religion leads to violence. 
just a really careful historical analysis where she basically says, if you want to know what causes religion to be involved in violence, it's its connection with the state. That's what happens. It's not just religion. Brilliant book. And as far as I know, she's not particularly Christian or religious. Then I read Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Just came out a couple of years ago, in which Perry argues that the sexual revolution has been an utter disaster for women. And she argues essentially for a traditional sexual ethic, the kind of ethic and the sorts of things that you would like to hear in a youth group telling your children how to live. And yet, she does not argue for a moment from the perspective of faith or of scripture or religion. She argues instead from, a, from the space of biology. Remarkable. So here I am reading this book going, these sound like Christian ideas, but she ain't. Then I read a book this, just, this, uh, just a couple of months ago now uh, by Justin Brearley. Uh, it's called The Surprising Rebirth in Belief in God. Uh, it was published in September of last year. Carl Fays, who many of you know, heads up Olive Tree Media along with his wife Jane and their team and was the senior pastor here for a long time. We worked together for a long time. He got me onto this book. Justin Brearley is a UK uh, podcaster. He has a podcast that's run for more than 10 years called Unbelievable, where he has essentially gotten atheists and Christians in the same room and they've talked to each other. And he writes this book, this surprising rebirth in belief in God, is a way to demonstrate the shifts that he is seeing in those conversations, in the people that he's following, and in those who are participating in that space. And what he observes time and time again is that there is a softening to matters of faith. And there's a renewed interest by those who are not Christians in the impact that faith has had and on the significance of faith. Some of you are familiar with the name Jordan Peterson, Canadian sociologist. Uh, he is not, as far as I know, a Christian. Justin Brearley kind of goes through a whole bunch of stuff about whether he is or isn't, can't decide. And this guy who is not necessarily a Christian has nonetheless done, I think, a series of 34 lectures on the book of Genesis. He goes, this is brilliant. This book is brilliant. And you're like, what? How is it that a non-Christian, someone who has not yet gotten to the point of being willing to say that Jesus is the way to the Father, how is it that they could say, nonetheless, the Bible is brilliant? The tide seems to be turning. And it's not just in things that I'm reading. Uh, late last year, uh, I caught up with a number of my colleagues in ministry, pastors of larger Baptist churches across Sydney, and a number of them shared that they were hearing more and more stories of people who were returning to church for utterly random reasons. In other words, there, was, there were no programs that they were running, there was no strategy that they had. There was no plan to try to encourage people to invite their friends. People were just showing up, saying things like, I had a dream, or I just felt I needed to go back to church, and so I Googled, and here I am. And they're in, and they're hearing it more and more and more and more and more. And they have no idea how it happened. They don't know how to duplicate it. They're not even sure what to do with it because these people have come from all sorts of walks of life and have all sorts of different responses to it. But it is beginning to happen. The Spirit of God is at work. Now, here's the thing. Not much into boats or tides. Water needs to be frozen before it's any good as far as I'm concerned. Right? 
But as I understand it, the tide does not go out immediately, does it? There is a point in time when the tide turns, but it still remains awfully uncomfortably high for a while. We are not yet out of the woods on this one, are we? There is still some sting in the tail. There is still hostility and resistance to faith and to Christianity. We still will need to be a little bit careful about how we engage with our society. But I would like to call us to courage and fidelity. Courage and fidelity to actually have a look at what is happening in our world and be faithful to the call that Jesus has placed on our lives to go where he sends us. To remember that wherever we are is where he has sent us in order that we might be alert to the work of God. Matthew chapter 9, remarkable little passage. Starting in verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then, this is where the chapter divisions are unhelpful, because there's a great big number, 10, that interrupts the flow. But here's how it reads all in one go. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out impure spirits to heal every disease, and he sent them out. One of the dangers of being defensive about our society, about seeking to preserve what we have, is that we are not paying any attention to the state of the crowds. We look at them and we see enemies. We look at them and see people who have turned away. We look at them and we see them as just people out there who, with whom we have very little in common and not much to do with. This urges us to lower our guard and to see the crowds in our society as harassed and helpless, as sheep without a shepherd and to take the path of courage to meet them where they are. Now, here's one of the things I think that's a real challenge for us. Have you heard of the, the term desire lines? Uh, it's, I'm not sure if it's architectural or not, but I, I first bumped into it. Um, it it's, you've all seen them. So you know you, you're walking through a park, and there's a beautiful path that has been, you know, paved for you, and it's all kind of laid out beautifully. And then there's the path that everyone walks across the grass. That is a desire line. It's where people actually want to go. Here's the thing that seems to be happening in our society. People are following the desire lines of their hearts. They're, they're finding that the uh, purpose that our world gives to them, which is nothing because we're all just going to die and there's nothing out there anyways, doesn't satisfy them. They're finding that it is just utterly exhausting to try to construct an identity for oneself when there are no guideposts about how to do that. They are finding themselves harassed and helpless, wondering about a moral and ethical framework, wondering if perhaps the Bible has something to say, and they're following their desire lines to Jesus. 
And I think the challenge for us as a church is not to stand on the footpath and yell, hey, it's over here. You, you're, you're, you're in the middle of the field. You need to look. We've spent 2,000 years working on this path. It's a good one. And it is. But they are following the desire line and we need to be found there. We need to recall the beauty of Scripture. We need to be those who are living out our purpose and identity grounded in Christ. We are those who need to be continually to learn and understand how the Christian framework has shaped our world and how it impacts ethics and morality. We need to be meeting people where they are and allowing them to follow Jesus. Because as you've heard me say before, anyone can start to follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. Follow me, he says to the disciples. He does not ask them whether they believe. He does not give them a pop quiz about how much they know. He does not demand they change their lives. He just says, are you willing to follow me? And when they say yes, that is enough. And eventually, as they follow him, they begin to learn more about him, which challenges what they believe about him, which eventually is going to challenge the way they live their life. But they don't have to begin there. And Jesus walks with these men for three years. He sends them on this mission before Peter acknowledges that he's the Christ. What in the world were they preaching? They didn't even know it yet. If they were preaching in the towns and people said, who is this Jesus? Peter would have gone, he's a prophet guy from God. He hadn't yet realized that Jesus was the Messiah, let alone to recognize what being the Messiah meant for Jesus. And Jesus sent him on mission anyway. If you feel you're not yet ready for mission, bum bum. If you've begun following Jesus, this is a call for us at the start of the year to courage and fidelity, courage to continue to present the gospel to people. Maybe not the way that they have always, maybe not the way that we have always presented it. Jesus is the only way to the Father, but there are many, 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 many ways to Jesus. We need to allow people to find him. We need to allow Jesus to find them. We need to walk with them, take our time, be patient, answer their questions when it comes up. We need to be true to the cause of Christ, to the mission that he has sent us on. And this fidelity and courage is not based on cultural trends or some reading that I did or some interesting census data. It's actually based on a really important theological principle. If you have your Bible with you and want to turn to Revelation chapter 5, as I close, let me turn to Revelation chapter 5, because that'll be an easy transition to the end, won't it? Pardon the pun. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation as a whole is written to seven historical and real but representative churches. Uh, They are facing increasing opposition and persecution and hardship from the world around them. In particular, the promises and the threats of Rome. The promises of Rome to be able to give them the truly good life and the threats of Rome to make their life miserable if they don't comply. And these seven historical churches are chosen as kind of a representation of the church everywhere and every when. 
In every society, in every situation where you find a Roman empire, some, some sort of empire that claims to be able to provide the good life and threatens you if you don't comply, you find these seven churches. And Jesus opens this revelation, his revelation, by um, evaluating these seven churches. He uh, encourages them and praises them for where they have been faithful. He gently reproves them where they have compromised and begun to find some accommodation with their society to kind of take some of the promises, uh, so, some of the promises of the good life without receiving any of the threats, trying to find that middle ground. And John has written these seven letters to these seven churches. And then in chapter four, the scene changes and we are taken into heaven. And from the perspective of heaven, everything that takes place on earth takes on a completely different light. Things on earth, you may have experienced this, are gray and fuzzy. Ever notice that? Hard and fast, black and white answers, I think, appeal to us for the very simple reason that there is almost no black and white in our life. Everything is so hard. It's so complicated. And people of goodwill and faith can end up on very different ends of the same decision. Guess what happens when you're in the perspective of heaven? Everything becomes very clear. Very, very clear. And all of the threats and all of the promises of Rome prove to be utterly empty because of what John sees. It's the dominant image of the book of Revelation, and it is the throne. And the one who sits upon it and lives forever and ever. Chapter 4 is taken up with describing the kind of the entourage. It's meant to kind of um, convey the greatness of the kingdom of God and the shallowness of the Roman authorities, right? They've got all the courtiers and the important people and the elders praising the one who sits on the throne, just like the Roman emperors did, but this, this throne is so much greater. And then it turns in chapter 5. Just a, it's a disservice to only do that much background, but I'm, I'm going to press on. Chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was able, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, really quickly, given what happens when the seals are opened, the scroll is God's plans and purposes for the world. It's his plans and purposes, not just for kingdoms and, and nations, but for his people. John has been writing to these people who are harassed and helpless, who are facing the, the difficulties of following Jesus. And in the, in the hand of the one who sits on the throne are his plans and purposes, but there is no one who is able to open it. And what that means is not that there were some sort of magical seals that no one had the right tool for. To be able to open the scroll is someone who has the authority to bring the, the deeds within it to effect. Think of it this way. Parliament passes legislation, and it is sealed with seven seals and sent to the appropriate department. That department is worthy to open the scroll. 
because it has the power and the authority and the resources and the understanding to do what Parliament has called them to do. You follow me on that? So when John begins to weep, it's not because there are indestructible seals. It's because there is no one who can take the plans and purposes of God and put them into effect, which means that God's people are going to be left to be harassed and oppressed and afflicted and persecuted and killed by Rome. There is no hope until one of the great turning points in all of Scripture Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And here's the twist. Because John turns, but he does not see a lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why, at the turn of the tide, and even if I'm wrong and the tide's just going to get higher, is there still a need for a call to courage and fidelity? Because ultimately, the one who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever is still on the throne. And the scroll that contains his plans and purposes for the restoration and renewal of all things is in the hand of the Lamb who is worthy to open it and to bring it to pass because he was slain. We cannot be defensive and build walls and close our doors. Not now, not ever. We must be the first to drop our guard, to tear down the walls, to open our doors. And I mean all of them because the stories I'm hearing is that people aren't going to come through the front door. They'll sneak in through the back or climb in through a window or tear off the roof and lower someone down. I don't care. We welcome them when they come in. And that takes some courage because it's risky. But our stance of courage and fidelity now at the turn of the tide is based on the example that we have been given of the Lamb who is worthy to do the work of God because he was slain. We must take the same position. Each of the letters ends with a call to those who um, uh, will overcome or to triumph or to conquer. And it's the same word used here to describe the victory of the Lamb. We need to be ready to sail with the tide. And I believe that it's beginning to turn. I believe there's evidence that there's openness in our world, like there perhaps hasn't been for a decade, two decades, more. We are called to courage and fidelity, to go where we have been sent, 
to say what we have been given to say, to walk with people as they follow Jesus in order that their lives might ultimately be transformed by him. Of all of these topics, this is the one that sat with me the most, the one that I feel I have the least of a handle on. Taylor Swift was one thing. This is different. (laughs) But I believe that there is an opportunity for us at the start of the year in particular to be ever more aware of where God is at work and to realize when you leave this door, look up and hear again the words of Jesus. As the Father sent me, I am sending you to participate in the plans and purposes of God to restore all things in Christ Jesus through the enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, can I, Martin, can I get you to pop up Martin on the PowerPoint, Martin? Uh, can I get you to pop up the QR code again? Uh, for those of you who have been here for the last number of weeks, you know that we've been, uh, we've kind of resurrected the uh, Big Three podcast, a companion podcast to what we do uh, here on Sundays, an opportunity for you to ask questions and for me to have a crack at answering them. There's been a number of great questions over the last number of weeks. I'm hoping for a, a kind of another good attempt. I think last week we had a, like a maximum, we had 11 questions or something, 12, something like that. It was fantastic. I had a whole bunch of work to do. So that was great. So if you want to snap that QR code, it'll take you to Linktree. You press the link, it'll take you to Slido. You can type in your questions and you can see other people's questions. So even if you don't have one, uh, have a look at that link. Uh, you, might want to see, you might see a question where you think, oh, I'd like to hear the answer to that. And then tune in on Wednesday when the big three gets uh, released. I'm going to invite the team up. They're going to lead us in worship, a song that reflects on this theme of the lion and the lamb. Uh, holds those two together. It's one of the great juxtapositions of faith, uh, that triumphing and victory is wrapped up in self-sacrifice, in love, in laying our, our lives down for those around us. But will you join me as I take a moment to pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are still on the throne, and that while the tides of secularism have been pretty, well, have been pretty high, And while it's easy for us to be a little bit fearful or at least tentative, a little bit private, in order that we don't kind of get our heads kicked in for not really much at all, we do pray that you would call each of us to ongoing courage and fidelity to your cause. I pray that by your Holy Spirit we might recall wherever we are this week that we have been sent and that we should be on the lookout for the things that you are doing. I pray that you would grant to us wisdom and patience to walk with those who might begin following Jesus in an unconventional way. And I pray that we would be able to find them on their desire lines. Instead of kind of forcing them onto our paths, that we might walk with them as they learn what it means to love and follow Jesus. We pray as a community of faith that we might be marked by courage and fidelity moving on. And that our posture to our world might be not one of seeking to grasp power or uh, to come out swinging, but that we might indeed take the stance of the Lamb who was slain who became worthy by sacrificing himself for the good of all nations, that we might see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast. We hope you found inspiration and encouragement and God used this message to speak to you. If you want to connect more with GBC, you can follow us on social media, or contact us via our website. You can also get to know some of the people from our church community through the We Are The Church podcast. Real stories of real people sharing how Jesus has shaped and transformed their life. We pray you experience the transforming power of Jesus in your life and pray that God blesses you today.